There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We trained an AI to play 56 classic old-school arcade games, and it turns out that you could learn to play pretty much all of the games to human-level performance, some cases superhuman-level performance. That's quite remarkable. How did it make you feel when you first realised that or I mean, saw it? It is staggering. I mean, it was, it was completely mind-blowing. And not only did it learn to play the games as well as a regular human games player, in some cases it discovered new strategies. It's a familiar feeling, a sense of awe and astonishment. And it's probably something you've felt sometime in the past year. Probably the first time you tried ChatGPT, OpenAI's chatbot, which took the world by storm in late 2022. ChatGPT is powered by a large language model, or an LLM, a type of machine learning that can generate new content at the push of a button. The models are large because they've been trained on massive datasets. The latest version of the LLM behind ChatGPT is thought to have been trained on pretty much all of the text available on the open internet. Artificial intelligence is firmly in the public discourse these days. It's a technology with plenty of promise, but also huge potential risks. Our guest today has been trying to bring those promises and perils to the public's attention for more than a decade. Mustafa Suleiman co-founded DeepMind with his friends Demis Hassabis and Shane Legg in 2010. DeepMind quickly became one of the world's most prestigious and cutting-edge AI companies. In 2014, it was acquired by Google's parent company, Alphabet. Mustafa later went on to work for Google, developing one of its first LLMs, called Lambda. In 2022, he left Google to set up his own company, Inflection AI. In his new book, The Coming Wave, Mustafa describes what the AI future might look like. In our conversation, he told us how we'll all be interacting with and living with AIs in the future. And he gave an assessment on how worried we need to be about the potential harms. Mustafa also told us why he thinks that people and governments aren't yet ready for the sweeping changes that the coming technologies could deliver. This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, Mustafa Suleiman on what our future relationship with artificial intelligence will look like and how we can all prepare for it. Just before we start, we should mention that Mustafa is a non-executive director on the board of The Economist Group, which is our parent company. But this interview is editorially independent. Mustafa Suleiman, thank you so much for joining us. Alok, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, let's start from the beginning. You're not an engineer or a computer scientist. And in your book, you talk about your life before tech. Describe that life for me. What were you doing? And then let's get to the point where you discovered technology. Yeah, I've got quite an unusual background in the sense that you're right. I started off doing philosophy and theology when I was at Oxford. I ended up dropping out of my degree after a couple of years. And I went back to London to help to start a telephone counselling service, a, a charity 
And that was a great transition for me at the age of 18. And from then on, I really just wanted to see if I could have the most positive impact in the world. So I, I ended up co-founding a conflict resolution firm. And I soon sort of realized I actually wanted to scale up that impact and doing it locally in small groups was not something that was going to change the world fast enough. And I realized how important technology was at that moment. I could see that Facebook was exploding, grown to 100 million monthly active users in two years, between 2007, 2009. And I wanted to get involved in technology. I did everything I possibly could to just meet people, talk to people, anyone who would teach me about tech. Was it the fact that these sorts of platforms allowed as you said, scale, allows you to do things for many, many people. Was that the thing that turned your head? And what was it about that that sort of attracted you? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it, it, I could see that the structure of the page itself, just the colors, the information hierarchy, the layout, the incentive structure... Of Facebook we're talking about. Of Facebook, was creating new relationships in the real world. It was driving very specific behaviors that were going to change... Ultimately, what people think, you know, what people feel, how they entertain themselves, how they learn. It, it was obvious to me that it wasn't just a neutral platform that was facilitating an underlying existing like social cultural state. It was massively changing it and adapting it in the process. We sort of design technology tools. They shape our values, our behaviors and practices. Those tools then end up shaping us. And that closed loop cycle is I think now self-evident to people, but it was observing that in Facebook and seeing that I was essentially trying to do that in the real world with conflict resolution or a new way of designing an intervention in a complex social problem. And I could see that technology was about to massively accelerate that feedback loop. But then how did you move from that to artificial intelligence? What was the point you realized that machine learning type models would be important? What was the point where you thought, you know, this is something we can build into uh, some amazing stuff? Well, it wasn't until sort of approaching the end of the first year of the company, DeepMind, the summer of 2011. So we started in 2010. By 2011, it was becoming clear that there were some methods in deep learning that were starting to you know, show signs of promise. The first was in images. I would say the second was in seeing the model that we extended beyond that work so well in a game of Atari. So we trained an AI called DQN to play 56 Atari games. These were the sort of classic old school arcade games. And essentially, we passed just the pixels frame by frame. And its job was to say, given these pixels, what is likely to be a rewarding strategy to help me predict what action I should take next? It didn't know it was playing a game. It didn't know that it was a game. It didn't know about score. It didn't know about moving left or right. It was simply trying to associate an action with a previous set of pixels that appeared in frames before, right? And it turns out that you could learn to play just with that very simple objective pretty much all of the games to human-level performance, some cases superhuman-level performance. That's quite remarkable. How did it make you feel when you first realized that or I mean, saw it? It is staggering. I mean, it was, it was completely mind-blowing. And not only did it learn to play the games as well as a regular human games player, in some cases it discovered new strategies. In the case of Breakout, it learned to tunnel the ball up the corner and bounce a ball up the back to try and get maximum number of points with minimum amount of effort. 
Let's zoom forward um, a few years. Now, you've been you know, at the forefront of various companies in AI research for more than a decade. But for the general public, this technology, which might have been bubbling around in the background, only really became part of their mainstream consciousness maybe a year ago, I'm being generous. Can you explain to me how we got here? ChatGPT, for example, which is the reason that a lot of people are nowadays talking about AI, it surprised a lot of people with what it could do with the language capabilities. Did it surprise you? So no, I mean, in many respects, it, it didn't surprise me and it hasn't surprised me. I mean, this is the continuation of over a decade of fairly predictable progress in the field of deep learning. The way to look at it is that there's sort of been two phases. The first phase, which went from 2013 or so to 2020 or so, was the phase of classification. And that's where the deep learning models were learning to recognize pixels, you know, understand the content of images, understand the content of audio well enough to transcribe the sound into written text. And naturally, having established what things look like and understanding the perceptual inputs of large data sets. The next phase, which began in the last sort of two or three years or so, is this generative AI phase. Once the model has learned to understand, say, visual input or text input or audio input, it knows something about the concepts that are in that data stream well enough that it can actually generate a new example of the content that it's been fed. So if you say to it, produce a crocodile with wings that is pink, right? It is essentially interpolating between those three concepts that it already holds and generating a new example of the thing that you've asked it to produce. So for you, it wasn't a surprise because it was predictable in terms of how how computing power was improving, how much data was improving, and so on. And I just wonder, large language models right now, the clue is in the name large, are they going to continue to grow uh, at the same pace? Because they're going to need more and more power to operate, they're going to need more data. I just wonder what your thought is on how much bigger these language models can get. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly the right question. And the reason why I think it's been somewhat predictable is because you can look back over the last decade and quantify the amount of computation used to train the largest models, the most cutting-edge models in each year. And, you know, since 2013, that amount of compute has 10 x every single year for the last 10 years. That's pretty steady, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a remarkable, you know, 10 orders of magnitude is a growth rate that we just don't see in any other area of life. It's remarkable. Now that the absolute number has got so large, you know, you mentioned the power, for example, you mentioned data and training tokens. I'm not sure that it will 10x every year for the next five or 10 years, but it's certainly going to 10x another three or four times. It's really very predictable. I mean, I, I think... Even at my own company, Inflection, we will 100x in terms of compute investment, the current frontier models in the world over the next 18 months. So two more orders of magnitude in size. And as these models get bigger, they start to have really interesting emergent properties. I mean, people are probably familiar and have played with ChatGPT and other language models that can talk to them, can respond to queries in a very human-like way, in a sort of almost like a suspiciously human-like way. Paint for me a picture of what these kinds of AIs can do well right now and what they can't do well. So then we can talk about what the sort of future looks like. 
One very crude intuition is that the model is learning an all-to-all connection between all of the input data that it has been given, right? And so at the scale of trillions of words of training data, size really does matter. Because if you have more computation, then you can sort of basically have more parameters which represent the relationship between all of the different tokens or words that go into the training set. And so what we see with scale is increased accuracy and more controllability. And for some people, that was counterintuitive because the primary criticism three years ago when GPT-3 first came out was that these models were biased and toxic and they would always produce inaccurate or even offensive outputs. That's turned out not to be true. The larger models are, in fact, more accurate, they have fewer hallucinations, and they're easier to control. So our AI Pi, which stands for personal intelligence, is incredibly subtle and nuanced and precise, and it has very deliberate behaviors. It has very strict guardrails. It's highly conversational. And I think what that indicates to me is that The good news is that as we scale up the size of these training runs, we'll be able to produce much more precise and therefore useful AI models. Are all the positives you just mentioned, are they a result of scale, training data and compute? Or is it also because, in your case with Pi, you've put guardrails in, you've decided what it can and can't do. I mean, these kinds of things are going to be important to shape how these things interact with people in the world. How much is it about the fact that these models just get bigger and they can perform better? And how much is it the human input as well? Yeah, you're definitely right. I mean, the the human input is essential. I mean, these models will reflect the very best of us and the very worst of us. I mean, they essentially amplify the values that we put into them. And so that's where the big responsibility and opportunity comes, right? To try to really shape models that respect the values that we care about, whether it's your business's values or whether they're your society's values. I mean, we will have a very different type of AI to what we have in China, for example. I mean, we hope that it won't be used in the way that it might be used over there. So, you know, the values really matter. What I would like to emphasize is that the capabilities don't emerge. We sculpt the capabilities, right? We, we reveal capabilities, but we can choose to reveal some capabilities and not others. I mean, we, we're very, very deliberate and careful about shaping certain capabilities and suppressing others. Okay, then, prediction time. What does the future look like for people using AIs in five years? What kind of day or lifestyle incorporates those sorts of models that you're talking about? Over the next five years, I think that there are going to be many, many different AIs. Anyone is going to have their own AI, and some of those will be more enterprisey, and some of those will be more personal. And I'm making a big bet that every individual consumer and every person, every citizen, will also want their own AI. And so what that will essentially do, your personal intelligence or your personal AI, is it will come to know you like a personal assistant. It will help you to organize and prioritize your day or help you to plan things, you know, book things, arrange things. Think of it as having the ultimate personal tutor in your pocket. It's going to know exactly what your style is and how you like to consume information. It'll be able to sort of prioritize what you learn, when you learn it. You know, so if I were a researcher or a scientist, I'd want a tool like this to help distill 
all the latest academic literature? What new papers have come out? What should I be paying attention to? I'd want to say, here's a new idea that I've been thinking about. Can you go away and do some research? Or can you think of any similar concepts like this? Is this novel or is there any prior work in this area? All those kinds of very practical questions. I mean, that's just in the case of a research scientist. But for every single other work domain or even individual hobby and pursuit, you're now going to have a really smart, capable research and planning assistant at your side. Just to be clear, that's an app on your phone or your computer that you talk to or or interact with in some way. The way I think about an AI is that it's much more than just an app. An AI is a relationship. It's a friend, you know, and an AI will be wherever you are. So you can actually talk to our AI, Pi, today on WhatsApp, Telegram, Discord, Facebook, Instagram Messenger, SMS. You can actually phone Pi. You can have a fluent conversation with Pi on the phone when you're walking home or when you're driving, when you're taking a walk in the park, when you're doing the dishes. And in time, it can't do this yet, but you'll you'll be able to tell it to remind you of things, you know, order the groceries. You'll say, I just came out of the shower. I got this great idea. I'm thinking to do X. It's really going to be ever present and alongside you, living with you, basically on your team. I like to think of it as like having a great coach in your corner. And what about 20 years from now? 20 years from now, I think, is much harder to predict. I think that we'll start to see the consequences of having made everybody much, much more productive, right? So I think that a lot of the sort of drudginess, cognitive manual labor is going to get extracted from the production chain, right? So let's set aside actual manual labor, because that involves robotics, and it's a whole different trajectory. But cognitive manual labor, I think of as the day to day tasks of administration, back office work, accounting, finance, payroll, you know, databases, supply chain management, project management, most of those things, I think, are going to get much, much more efficient with these tools. And so the question is, with this new time, and space, what kind of creative endeavors and entrepreneurial endeavors are people going to get up to? And I think that overall is set to make us much, much more productive as a species, because we're going to have time to invent and create and essentially produce new value in the world. Now, you've been explaining to me how transformative AI is going to be in the future. It's a very sort of enticing vision, and it makes sense as well. But of course, you yourself have been front and center in this revolution. And as you've described with inflection, you've got a very company, which is building some of the largest large language models. So forgive my journalistic cynicism, you would say all this, wouldn't you? I mean, it makes sense for you to say all this. Tell listeners why your vision goes beyond just sort of your own interests in this. Well, I mean, I, I guess... Kind of like what I just said, really. I mean, I'm I'm describing what I see, and I'm also betting that my prediction about the way that the invention ecosystem will unfold is also just going to be how it happens. And therefore, I'm sort of placing two big bets. I've written a book laying down, like, you know, my ideas in the most transparent way as best as I can. And that is an exercise in I think, accountability. You know, we can see in five or 10 years whether I was completely wrong. And likewise with the company, we'll be able to see if I'm completely wrong, if if I've over 
bet on this and it turns out not to be possible for some reason in the next two or three years, then you'll see a, you know, a, a burning hole in the ground um, of very seismic you know, scale. So, you know, I uh, will see. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get into the nitty gritty of, of what's going to make this happen or not. There are big hurdles to growing these language models even bigger. You talked about how there could be a few more orders of magnitude in terms of how big they can get in the next few years and before we start to hit limits. For example, GPT-4, which is the latest model from OpenAI, seems to have scraped pretty much all the data available on the internet. If you want to train an even bigger model, if you want to do it uh, inflection or Google wants to do it or Facebook or whoever else, where is this extra data going to come from? Mm. A lot of people have been concerned about that. I'm not entirely sure it's going to be a constraint. So it's an open research question, but there are a number of possible paths. I think the first thing to say is that it may be possible to generate synthetic data that is of high enough quality. So that means have an AI that is good enough to write an entire book accurately that you can then feed that back into the training pipeline. There are some issues with that direction, but it may be possible. Second is that there's some signs that it's possible to achieve improved performance through repetitions. The third is that there's actually a lot more data out there than I think people realize. People say all the data on the open web. It's just not quite true. There's there's a lot more. Where? You mean hidden inside companies or people's own computers or what? What, what would you mean by Correct. more? Yeah. Not on people's computers, no. But, you know, a lot of companies have a ton of data. So there's those... Proprietary kind. commercial, yeah, yeah. Exactly, proprietary commercial. And then I think there's interaction data. When you talk to the model, there's potential for that to be used for training. So I think there's a lot of different directions, and I, I don't necessarily think that's going to be a constraint. And then I think the other direction that is quite promising is being able to train these models with less data that is higher quality. You know, I think there's lots of different research directions to explore here. And what about the physical infrastructure, the chips? At the moment, your company, others are using the best possible chips. These things will get updated, and NVIDIA, of course, makes some of these enormously powerful graphical processing units. Are those chips going to keep getting better and better, or do you think that we're reaching a choke point there? I think that the, the chips are on a trajectory to keep getting better. I mean, the difference between today's cutting-edge NVIDIA H100, which is the latest version, and the NVIDIA A100 from three years ago gives you 3x more flops or kind of units of computation per dollar. Floating point operations for anyone who doesn't yeah. know what a flop is. Thank you very much. <laughs> and that's a pretty remarkable achievement. I mean, that's free money. <laughs> it's great. So, you know, at inflection, we have something like 25,000 now H100s. And so by comparison, it's the equivalent of having 75,000 A100s of the previous generation, which is eye-watering, given that the rumors are that GPT-4 was trained on 25,000 A100s. So we have 3x more compute in GPT-4. On top of that, the next generation is likely to do the same 3x more per dollar. Plus, there are lots of other new tricks that are coming into the models as they've been optimized for these big daisy-chained computational infrastructure runs. And so, you know, it's going to, I think, continue at a clip. I don't, I don't see any risk that that's going to slow down anytime soon. Okay, so it sounds like you're and many others are all in on large language models and this future growth. But the technology itself isn't without its own critics. I mean, earlier this year, we spoke to the cognitive scientist Gary Marcus, who told us that LLMs are fascinating and interesting, but probably won't be the thing that takes us to this sort of new artificial intelligence world. I mean, we can hear a clip from him. And I'd like to have a, have a, a <laughs> oh think about responding. I think when people write the history of AI 15 years from now, 
they'll say large language models were really cool. They exposed people to what AI could really do. It didn't really work. It had a lot of problems, all the hallucinations and stuff like that. It was also very expensive to train, required a lot of data. It was a pain in the ass to work with. And they'll say in 2025, people figured out a better way to do this or something like that. And those things disappeared. They were like a dress rehearsal for real AI. Is there a chance that we're getting distracted by LLMs and leaving behind the other ways of doing AI? Absolutely not. I mean, you, you know, have a look at the incredible performance that we see. Compare the progress between GPT-4 and GPT-3 and GPT-2. It's unquestionable, right? We obviously don't want to go all in on any single method. Isn't that what's happening though right now with, with, with all companies? That's naturally that what happens when there's any excitement. I mean, the reason why everyone's going all in at the moment is because it's working. You know, you, the, the entire field is not stupid. Like everybody is betting huge on this and everybody is delivering incredible experiences, totally magical, mind-blowing experiences that were basically, you know, not even close to being on the table three or four years ago. But that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't also pursue other methods. Absolutely. I mean, we want to have diversity of bets. We want to have a whole range of different engineering efforts. We want to do everything possible to mitigate the weaknesses and downsides of these models. You know, hallucinations is a fundamental challenge. I believe they're going to be largely eliminated by scale, but they may not be and we may need other tricks. So no, no question that we should be doing research in, in all other areas as well. Let's talk about some of the downsides then. The AI-dominated society that you've been describing does come with a lot of risks, and you're very honest about them in the book. Outline for me what you are most concerned about in terms of the things that might go wrong if we're not cognizant and careful in how we introduce these technologies to the world. I think most of the people who have been concerned about AI over the last sort of five years or so have framed the danger as one of a potential existential threat of a superintelligence, an AI that could somehow update its own code and just recursively self-improve itself and ultimately, you know, deceive us and trick us to let it out of the box and then cause some sort of chaotic, unintended harm because it suddenly, like, develops intelligence powers way beyond any human and therefore it would be impossible to, you know, keep it in the box. And I think this is actually a really unhelpful framing of the problem because, you know, this speculates on a possible trajectory that is, in my opinion, uh, and some people disagree with this, 20 or 30 years away, I mean, decades away. So it's not to say that, you know, it's irrelevant and we should completely ignore it. It's to say that in the next five years, we have a long list of very practical risks that we have to mitigate. I mean, you know, we need to make these models as accurate and reliable as possible. That's a huge engineering challenge. The second thing is, these models are going to get really good at generating new forms of misinformation. People are going to use them to continue what they've been doing in social media for the last 10 years, which is amplifying polarization, destabilizing what is true and what is not, and generally spreading fear, right? And it's going to now get easier to do that because anybody with fewer technical skills, with less financial resources, is going to have an easier time of producing made-up stuff. Now, that's definitely not an existential risk, but it's a very practical thing that we do need to work on. In the elections, for example, or just general information, vaccines, etc. 
Exactly, in both, right? I mean, I, I've actually come out in an op-ed saying that we should call for a ban on the use of AI-generated tools for electioneering and election campaigning. So these chatbots shouldn't engage in any kind of explanation about the election stuff. It's just not reliable enough, and they certainly shouldn't engage in any kind of persuading or campaigning. How do you manage those sorts of risks in the near term and the medium term, especially if all companies who are developing these models, and there are only a few of them really, including yours, that power is concentrated in a few hands, essentially. So how do you mitigate the sort of risks of all of that that we've just discussed, given that companies also want to make money and be the first to do these amazing things and get to that world that you described earlier? It's a very fair question. I think it's another one of the big risks that we have to contend with as these models get bigger and bigger. They cost hundreds of millions of dollars to train. They require deep technical expertise that is very expensive and scarce. And so there are really only ever going to be a small number of very large model developers. And that represents a kind of centralized power that we have to hold accountable. On the flip side, there's going to be a mass proliferation of these models. The open source movement is not too far behind the cutting edge. You know, there's very, very talented open source developers who are building models which aren't quite as good as what you get at the big companies, but they're good enough to experiment with. And so I think that's the flip side of the challenge, which is like, how do you handle this huge proliferation of power, you know, which is very easy to copy and replicate? I mean, you could you could store the model weights from an open source model on, on a small hard disk that can be moved around very easily. What, what's your opinion around this sort of open source movement in AI? I think that... For the time being, probably for a good number of years to come, it's a great thing that these are available in open source. You know, the best way to reduce fear is to give people the chance to wrap their heads around the strengths and weaknesses of these models. So there's huge upside there. Having said that, the fact that these models are going to be available in open source does mean that they'll be much, much harder to regulate, right? And, and there are capabilities which we would want to suppress, Right. So if there is an open source model, which is very easy to run a recursive self-improvement loop, then I think that would be a dangerous capability to have out in the wild. If there's an open source model that has been optimized for cyber attacks or for coaching somebody to develop a biological weapon, both of those capabilities we've seen in these large models, and we've certainly removed them from our model and OpenAI and Anthropic have done the same. Those would be very dangerous capabilities to have out in the open source. And so that raises the question of like, how do we actually prevent the proliferation of those sorts of capabilities? But I think we should keep the the anti-proliferation efforts very restricted for the time being, right? They should really only be to the things which we already know to be illegal. And we should be wary of people who are sort of trying to do illegal things. We shouldn't be going further than that anytime soon. Are you worried about it? Yeah, I'm very worried about it because I think it, this lowers the barrier to entry to a bad actor wanting to take some kind of action to destabilize our world. We'll be back with Mustafa in just a moment. First, though, just a quick reminder that you can keep up to date with the ever-evolving story of generative AI by taking out a subscription to The Economist. Our most recent coverage explored the role that AI might play in the many elections of 2024. That was a recent cover story and briefing. This week, our editor-in-chief, Zani Minton-Beddows, also sat down with Mustafa Suleiman and also the author and historian, Yuval Noah Harari. They explored whether AI could ever have agency. You can watch that debate in full on our website. 
There's much more on AI to come as well. Babbage listeners can try out a month of a digital subscription for free by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Coming up, I'll ask Mustafa how AI is influencing the enterprise of science and what to do to manage those risks that he's so worried about. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today on Babbage, I'm in conversation with Mustafa Suleiman, one of the co-founders of AI companies DeepMind and more recently, Inflection AI. Now, the flip side to the AI will destroy us hypothesis and theory that some people try and scare everyone with is that AI is going to save us and create solutions for climate change and new battery materials, new drugs, all that sort of exciting stuff, accelerate scientific productivity, essentially. And it's a large part of your book, too. You also talk about biotechnology and synthetic biology. Talk to me about what is it about those technologies that you put on a pedestal that's similar to the AI sort of uh, wave? Well, so with synthetic biology, we're essentially turning an exercise that previously required experimentation in wetware. So you had to physically handle a compound and manipulate it and test it with some specific experiments in the real world. We're increasingly, not entirely, but increasingly turning that process into a computational effort, right? So the more we represent things that were previously in atoms, we represent them in bits. So we move into information space, the faster the process of evolution, right? And so that is the trajectory that we're seeing more and more over the last 30 years in biology, right? Not only have we been able to read DNA, but we can increasingly synthesize DNA, that is like print new compounds. And that is likely to enable us to increase the speed of innovation and discovery, create new types of materials which suit the specific purposes that we care about. Maybe they are more resistant to disease. Maybe they are more robust in some way. Maybe they're cheaper. They're more efficient. They have higher protein content, et cetera, et cetera. So we're sort of turning the quest to find new compounds into a a search process, right? And that's what we've obviously been doing in agriculture or in food for centuries, right? I mean, that is the process of natural selection. We can now, you know, produce the same kilo of grain by using only 2% of the human labor that was required 100 years ago. And that's an amazing achievement for productivity. And it's a result of this constant process of iteration and evolution by natural selection, essentially. And now we're sort of turning that into a computational search space. So that tells me that with scientific progress, you could accelerate large parts of it by having these sorts of artificial cognitions. You can have lots more artificial scientists sort of working on problems, whether it's searching for new materials or optimizing ways of growing food, or, for example, using synthetic biology techniques. What are the sort of hurdles towards that? I don't necessarily see any 
obstacles. I mean, we're we're genuinely at the very, very beginning of this revolution. And if you just look at what the tools are doing in their abstract form, they're helping you to do, you know, the entire scientific process, right? You are, first of all, trying to creatively establish a hypothesis. You know, what combination of elements do you think is likely to cause some effect? You're then asking a model to help search over some past number of ideas or papers or prior literature, which provides some evidence for that case. And then you're going to want to get it to help you design an experiment that allows you to test and validate that. So each of the stages of invention and discovery are now made just a little bit more efficient, making you as an individual scientist a little bit more productive. And I think that the volume of team discovery is about to scale up massively. And I I think that in itself, rather than fundamentally reimagining the scientific process, I think that in itself is going to lead to huge gains. Do you think that AIs at some point will be making their own hypotheses and doing everything in a closed loop and then just coming up with ideas, thoughts and things that can be later checked by humans? I'm just wondering if you can take humans out of the loop at any point. Yeah, I mean, I'm not desperate to take humans out of the loop no, on any I was front. I curious if I that mean, would happen. It's a good question. I think it's the right question. And I think many people are going to be asking it. So I, mean, I think you're spot on. But the first part of what you said is absolutely true. So, you know, AIs are going to generate new hypotheses. I mean, why should they not? Essentially, these models are very good at interpolation. They're really sort of trying to find, you know, a point between multiple different conceptual ideas, just like the sort of crocodile example I gave earlier. But now imagine it for tens of thousands of points, this massively multi-dimensional intersection. I mean, that's essentially, you know, a hypothesis. It's a new idea. And, you know, many of those might be awful and the human, you know, might work through a series of iterative steps with the model to craft a new hypothesis. I can certainly see that being the way that science gets done in the future. Now, before we finish up, Pi wants us to ask you about how to better manage the risks of AI. So in your book, you tell people about an idea you have called containment. It's an idea that goes back to the Cold War, to nuclear proliferation. You say that it's not possible in the coming waves of technology. So what what can we do then to sort of contain the risks that are out there? Well, I think I framed it as not being possible as a provocation to encourage people to help me refute the idea that it is not possible. I mean, containment is a pretty simple and intuitive principle that I think will resonate with most people, which is to say that technologies that we develop should always, in the future, be accountable to us as humans, controllable by us. We should be able to impose real constraints at any point in the development or deployment process to make sure that they are accountable to our democratic institutions so that we can make the decisions collectively as a species about how much of a free reign we end up giving these kinds of AIs over time and these kinds of biological tools. Because the time will come when, you know, synthetic life is a genuinely capable option. We have to confront that reality that both AIs and synthetic life is coming over the next 30 years. And we'll have to make some very major decisions around what we leave on the tree. Which fruit do we not pick? Because we're sort of making that that moral and political choice as a species. That sounds to me like a very honest embrace of the problems that might be ahead. But as an entrepreneur, 
how can you leave things on the tree? How would you sort of justify that to your shareholders, investors, etc.? Well, I think people do that all the time. I mean, for example, we don't get to fly drones around wherever we like at the moment, right? That's a new technology. It's very capable. It's actually pretty safe. It can be used in lots of practical ways, but it's regulated. And that's a good thing. We've made the decision for various reasons, invasion of privacy, noise, all kinds of reasons that we should don't want those to be buzzing around our neighborhoods 24-7, even though they could well be. So in my opinion, that's a containment strategy. We've decided as a, you know, set of nation states to leave that for the time being until it's sort of more provable. I mean, I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, the incentives of a company obviously really do matter. We've, we've founded the company as a public benefit corporation, which is a new type of company which means that we have a legal obligation to hold the requirement to return value to our investors as an equal motivation to the obligation to do good for the world. We have to account for the impact of our activities on people that are not our customers. Let me ask that incentive question in a slightly different way then. I mean, you have called for things like regulation and discussions about the harms and risks of these amazing technologies. OpenAI, uh, Chief Executive, um, Google, everyone is talking to members of governments around the world about regulation in a much more sort of forward-thinking way, perhaps, than previous generations of technology. And that's a good thing. But on the flip side of that, all of that regulation will cost money. It'll mean that the rate of progress will be slightly slower necessarily. How does that fit with the sort of raw red meat of capitalism and making as much money as possible, which the tech companies are mainly known for? I don't see why we can't do both. I mean, I don't really even see those as in obvious tension. I mean, I think we, we want to create a healthy and peaceful world, and that's how we'll create profitable opportunities. And I think having a constitution which doesn't just require us not to cause harm, but actually directly incentivizes us to do good is is a great thing. I, I feel like, you know, this is the evolution of incentive structures and the corporate structure itself. And it's experimental. We don't know that it's going to work, but I, I definitely think it's headed in the right direction. What's one thing that companies like yours can do to make sure that as you go forward, that problems within AIs and, and the sort of implementations of them are managed? Well, I think the first thing that we've already committed to doing in the voluntary commitments that we signed up to at the White House two months ago, along with the other companies, is that we will red team our own models, find their weaknesses, and then share those safety best practices, not just with our competitors, but with everyone in the world. And I think that's a really significant step forward. And something that other companies should do. Yeah, most definitely. And I think the open source movement is starting to do this as well now. So I expect this to become the default culture in years to come. Okay, writing and talking about the risks of all these global challenges in your book, I mean, it must have taken quite an emotional toll on you. I'm just wondering how optimistic you are about the future. I don't like to think of myself as an optimist or a pessimist. I think each of those are biased in their own way. I mean, I, I think we need a clear-eyed view of the threats, and we need to be very focused on the benefits because this is going to be a radically beneficial transformation that lifts, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, that improves our lives and well-being for many, many people. And I think there's a huge win at the end of this if we can just manage some of the turmoil that might arise along the way. You know, every new technology that has ever arisen has that characteristic. I mean, a truly novel fear is what we face with each wave. In the book, I found this story about 
the first railway trip that was taken in Liverpool in the late 1800s, the Prime Minister and the Member of Parliament at the time were standing on the tracks celebrating the arrival of this train. And they had no conception of the movement of this, you know, this beast. And it ran through the celebration party and killed a bunch of people. I mean, this is just remarkable. Isn't that like an incredible realization that actually things can feel so alien and unfamiliar? And then in a snap, they feel readily part of the fabric of our lives. And we know how to deal with the downsides and get most of the upsides. And I think we've demonstrated our ability to do that in so many different ways over the centuries. And I think we have to have confidence in our ability to be resilient and adaptive and not sort of characterize one another as like techno-optimistic or catastrophizing and pessimistic. I think we just have to basically hold both intentions simultaneously, and that's where maybe we'll get a little bit of wisdom out of it. Okay, Mustafa, that was fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. That was fun. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Next week, we'll be diving even deeper on the topic of how AI could accelerate and perhaps even completely transform the practice of scientific research. We'll also meet some fascinating lab robots that promise to automate at least some of the drudgy parts of the scientific process. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and Kunal Patel. The sound engineer is James Stickland, and the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.